Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. A very warm welcome to everyone to discuss the outcome of the French presidential election on Sunday. I am Denzel Dates, and I'm an advisor here on European and multilateral issues at Global Council. And I am delighted to be joined by Professor Olivier Costa, who is a director at both Sciences Po and uh, the College of Europe, and is executive editor of the Journal of European Integration. Now, uh, just before we start our conversation, uh, the conversation will last an hour. We have the first 45 minutes uh, discussing the result, and then we'll have 15 minutes dedicated to a Q&A from our listeners. I want to talk to you about the explanation for the result, significance, what it means for the future of French politics in general and the legislative uh, elections coming up in June in particular, and what it means for the French policy agenda over the next five years. So a lot of ground to cover, and we'll do our best to do so in the time we have. Now, starting with the election itself. Uh, it was a comfortable win, it's a healthy win, but it wasn't an overwhelming win as his victory was five years ago. And a comfortable win against the far right rather than an overwhelming one is, is a bit of a new development. Uh, it's the first re-election of a sitting president since uh, Jacques Chirac in 2002, I think. Uh, that was also against the far right. But on the other hand, it's the first re-election, if I'm right, of a president whose party leads the government in parliament in the Fifth Republic since 1965. So one could look at it from President Macron's point of view as either glass half full or glass half empty. What do you think the explanation is to the outcome and what are the main factors driving the electorate? Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I guess that the, the, that story of the glass half empty or half full is a good one. It's something we always have after an election. You you watch TV and you see people who each have another view of the story, and basically everybody's a winner or everybody's a loser. And uh, I personally find that always very annoying to when you see those people full of bad face explaining that they they have lost, but finally they have win, etc., etc. But what is interesting in the case of the election of, of Sunday is that really you can tell the two stories. On the one hand, you can say, okay, Macron made it. He had a very difficult term because in the last five years, we had the Gilets jaunes, we had the COVID crisis, we had an economic and social crisis. And uh, many commentators were saying how much people hated Macron, that he had no support, no legitimacy. And he's winning by 58% of of the votes, which is uh, the third best score under the Fifth Republic. Uh, Only Chirac did better. He did 80 and something against Le Pen. And Macron himself did better in 2017. But no one, even De Gaulle, has never done such a score uh, since uh, 1965 with those two two exceptions. And also... um, it is far better than what was expected. Uh, in Sciences Po Paris, I'm working at the CVPOF with a research center very much focusing on public opinion poll, 
we had public opinion polls five a day, and uh, as they were all ranking between a score for Macron 51 to 56. And at, at some point, it was even so close that it was clearly uncertain. It, there was a possibility that Marine Le Pen would have uh, would have won, depending on what happens in the last week of the campaign. So having uh, won that election by 58, it's really not bad, uh, considering how difficult it was supposed to be. And it also puts Macron in quite a good position. And uh, people were also saying that abstention would be used, but abstention was 28%. So it's quite much, but it's not uh, the first time we have such levels. And if you compare to other elections, it's far better. Uh, For local election, we had 66% abstention for the regional election and the department election. We had 59% for the town elections. Uh, So a 28 is is much, but not that much. And then regarding the blank vote, it was something like 6.5%, which is pretty much in the French tradition, but nothing to do with the 20% that some were expecting. Also on the side of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the extreme left, uh, people were saying that people who abstained basically were uh, dissatisfied with the choice that was offered to them between the extreme left, uh, right with Le Pen and the center with Macron. But this is not true because for the first round of the election, we already had 26.3% of abstention. So basically, Basically the same. And in the first round, we had 12 candidates of any kind. So uh, my uh, view on that is that people who don't go to vote, they don't want to go to vote. And also there is a technical factor here or two. First of all, there were holiday and, and then many people were not at home. And it's quite complicated to ask for someone to vote for you. And second, now we have a system of automated registration on the list as soon as you are 18 years old. And a lot of young people, they don't even know that they can vote. So mechanically, this is creating uh, abstention. So this is a half full story. Then you can take the the, the half empty uh, story and say that 42% for an extreme right party, this is huge because they started with something like 18% in 2002 when Le Pen was against Chirac. Uh, They moved to 33% five years ago, and now it's 42%. So they're they're really on the rise and everybody's saying what will happen next time, because uh, uh, clearly the Rassemblement National is the main party in the opposition in France. Also, you can make calculation and looking that uh, with a degree of participation, with a degree of blank vote, you could say that Macron is not well elected. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left uh, candidate, has said that Macron was uh, the the least well uh, elected president under the Fifth Republic. It's not totally true true, but it's true that it's not a massive support uh, for him. And also, it is true that the situation is difficult for Macron now in view of the legislative election, because many people who went and go uh, to vote for Macron uh, to ban uh, the road uh, to uh, Le Pen uh, will not vote for him for legislative election. And a president in France with no majority in the National Assembly is in a very difficult situation. What do you think were the main factors driving people's decision whether to vote for Macron or not? I, I think that Macron in 2017 has made the whole of French political system explode. He had, and 
So people said he was elected because he was very lucky, because uh, François Fillon uh, were, was in a bad situation in 2017, uh, because he was trapped in his corruption issues, etc., etc., and that otherwise Fillon was to be elected and Macron has just sneaked in the place and he was very lucky. But this is not totally true because Macron has made one analysis which was true. That was that the center-left uh, uh, parties, Socialist Party, and then center-right party were very divided on international affairs and European issues. In both camps, you had people that were quite Eurosceptic and anti-globalization and quite Europhile and pro-globalization. And, and they, they managed to work together, but this is so difficult because it's a story that goes very far in the past. If you think about the ratification of the Maastricht Treaty 92, or the ratification of the Constitution Treaty 2003. In both cases, there was a profound division within the Socialist Party and within the right-wing party around, uh, let's say, European and international affairs, to a point where it was not manageable anymore. And that's why we had very strange campaigns, for instance, to European elections for now 20 years, because we have the two main parties are unable to speak clearly about European affairs because they don't agree. Macron has seen that and said, okay, I think it's possible to create a new party in the middle and to convince the moderate left and the moderate right people to work with me, having a very strong pro-European discourse. And this was really a challenge. And I know that he was advised very much in 2017, don't speak about European affairs. People don't like that in France. And he said, no, I will speak about European affairs and I will win like that. And he did it because he was able to cut into the socialists that were in, in a way already in a very messy situation because of the term of François Hollande, who has been fighting during five years against the left side of the socialist party. The right-wing party was also in trouble because of Fillon, but also because of those divisions about what to do with international affairs, global issues, who are our allies are, etc., etc. And so Macron was able also to convince, let's say, 50% 50 of the electors of Les Républicains to, uh, to vote for him. And then, because he was against Marine Le Pen in the second round in 2017, he has scenarized the election as one pro-European, progressive, modernist, optimistic globalization candidate against an anti-European, Eurosceptic, uh, very hostile to globalization candidate and who's favorable to closing the country. He has played that card 2017 and he has played exactly the same this year. And he played exactly the same in 2019 for the, for the European election. And the point is that the center-left and center-right movement are not able to overcome that division, are not able to find a way to elaborate a, a clear position on European and international affairs. And it was very interesting to see, you have certainly heard about that initiative of having a primary at the left wing, the, la primaire populaire. Uh, asking people to vote for a candidate, to have a single candidate at the left, did not work. What was very interesting was the platform, the political platform of La Primaire, a 10-point platform, something like 10 pages, very precise, those are our values and goals, and the candidate should stick to that. In that document, there was not a single word, not a single word about Europe affairs or international affairs. You could do a control F in the PDF and look for Europe or European or international. There was nothing because they don't agree on those issues. So they don't, they hide those issues. They don't speak about those issues. But the problem is that citizens are not stupid. 
They know that part of the important topics today are located in Brussels, in Washington, D.C., in Geneva, and that we need to have a line on that. And the Ukrainian war has shown that so well. The fact that we have in France at the extreme left and the extreme right, people who are very close from Vladimir Putin, who are totally allergic to European integration, allergic to NATO, and, and that are playing a dangerous game. So this has been very favorable to Emmanuel Macron. Yes, I mean, this is a really interesting and very big point because clearly <clears throat> this division between those who are of European uh, of Europe uh, and, uh, and globalization, those who are against, as if you say, worked successively very well for President Macron. But isn't there also a longer-term risk in French politics that you win coherence at the price of polarization and then a further risk that it's all very well when you've got a winner like Macron, but at some point in a democracy, people want an alternative. And if you make the choice, a permanent one between being for globalization or against globalization, at some point, voters are going to choose a candidate who is against globalization and against the EU. Oh yeah, you're totally right. I think the, the, the current political situation in France is not is not is not good because basically now we have tr- three main parties. We have Macron in the middle, we have Marine Le Pen at the extreme right, and we have Jean-Luc Mélenchon at the extreme left. And basically, this uh, this is connected also very much to some factors that goes deep in the society: the level of education, the level of income, where people are living, etc. And it's clearly creating a division between two Frances. Uh, we never had that. Before it was more subtle. You had the left wing, the right wing, the centuries, the extreme left, the extreme right. And, and there was some sort of mix because at the right uh, wing, there were people uh, who were wealthy or, or not that much. In the socialist parties, there were people coming uh, that were blue collars, but also professors and so on. And now it's becoming very simple. High income, educated people, optimistic, favorable to globalization and European integration. They vote Macron and uh, uh, people uh, uh, who have a, a lower background, less educated, uh, uh, who are living in the countryside, etc. They vote uh, 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 Le Pen and some other people who are more medium class, environmentalist, etc., etc. Uh, they vote uh, they vote for, for for Mélenchon and there is no connection anymore between those three kind of forces. And everybody now is fearing very much the social situation in France because we know that both. Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen, they don't really accept the result of the election and they really want now to continue the election in the streets. And you know how good French people are demonstrating and this may come out of control very soon. Yes, in fact, in the first round, if you take at the votes of far right, uh, Le Pen and Zemmour, and the votes of the far left, Mélenchon, uh, and I think communist candidate as well, they add up to more than 50%. Yeah, exactly. So there is a degree of rejection of the institution, the establishment, the system, etc., etc., in France, which is super high. And so with that very strong polarization between Macron and all the other one, and, and, and this is not good. And so Macron, as soon as he was elected, has said that now he's going to work in a different way and to change his method to try to reconnect people, count down all the cleavages we have in the society. And this is certainly needed. 
Otherwise, for the next election, uh, we may have an extreme right leader or we may have also some sort of connection between the extreme left and the extreme right against the center. And uh, they don't share values, et cetera, et cetera, but on socioeconomic affairs, on European affairs, on international issues, they totally agree. There, there is really a connection. Then the extreme left people, they don't like the approach of the extreme right regarding immigration, xenophobia, the status of police and so on. But on international economic issues, social affairs, they totally agree. So I mean, we still have a, a socialist party, a socialist, the centre-left, uh, who got, I think, less than 2% in the presidential elections. We still have a centre-right party, Le Républicain, got, I think, it's about 4.5, 4.6 the presidential election. Uh, and we will see, perhaps, at the legislative elections, whether these parties have a future. Do you think they do? Yeah, I think they do for, for several reasons. First of all, they have been the victim of some, what we call, vote utile, the fact that people are voting for candidates that have chance to be elected. And for instance, Mélenchon did 22% in the first round, and he's very proud of that. But many people who were to vote for the communists, the socialists, the Greens, have voted to for, for Mélenchon, saying there is a slight change for that guy to be at the second round. So I'm not going to waste my vote uh, voting for the, the socialist or the ecologist. I will vote for uh, Mélenchon, e expecting that he's capable to do more uh, than, uh, than Le Pen. Other people have voted utile for Macron, uh, saying, OK, I don't like him that much, but he's better than Le Pen and Mélenchon, so I will uh, vote for him. And the same at the extreme right. So I, I think that there is a deep crisis for the socialists and, and the Republicans, but the electoral basis is more than the, the, the figures of, of the election. Also, there is a, another thing which is very interesting in, in, in the French politics, is the fact that there is now a total disconnection between national politics and local politics. In national election, what I call national election is presidential election and European election, because now we vote in a single constituency. Those who make a big score are Macron, Le Pen, Mélenchon. When you look at local election, I mean, town election, election at the level of departments, election at the level of regions, the party who are winning there are still the socialists and, and the Republicans because they are very well organized on the ground. And if you look at who is holding today the main cities in France, it's still mainly socialists and, and, and Republicans and the Greens. And the Greens also are in the same situation, doing quite well on the ground and not able to do a decent score in, in national election because, again, uh, here they were not able to do uh, to do 5%. Um, uh, and just to interject, another possible reason why perhaps is that at the local level, being centre-left, centre-right, or left or right is still coherent. It's only when you get to the national level that it becomes incoherent because of the European and international questions you face. Yeah, I totally agree with your analysis because, uh, yeah, you don't have to care with, for those international and European uh, uh, affairs that are very divisive in the main parties when you run a region, a department, or a town. Uh, also, it's very much linked to the structures of political parties on the ground. And what is quite interesting is to see that La République En Marche or uh, uh, Les Insoumis or uh, the, the, the National Rally, they don't have the resources on the ground. They're not well structures, they don't have people to campaign for them. And if you want to win a local election or regional election, you need that. Then comes the, the legislative election, because legislative elections are a bit mixed. 
There is a national dimension here because clearly people will go and vote to legislative election, a bit depending on their choice into in presidential election. But at the same time, it, it's it's a, it's an election in small constituencies. It's 577 elections in constituencies that are not that big. And at that level, who has the resources? It's the socialists, the Republicans, and to some extent the Greens and the Modem and so on. And then they have the help of uh, uh, the, the, the Myers and the, um, the help of people sitting in the region and the department, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this is why the negotiation in view of the legislative election will be very difficult, because on the one hand, we have those national parties who feel that uh, they have won the wall sink and are in a very good situation to negotiate with other parties and say, let's try to have single candidates to defeat the others. And the traditional parties saying, OK, but we're not going to take as a point of reference the result of presidential election because we are strong on the ground and we're not going to give out our constituencies to the, to the Rassemblement National on the one hand or to les Insoumis on the other hand. Do you remind us all I mean, how much it matters whether the president has a majority that agrees fundamentally agrees with him in the National Assembly? It's, it's fundamental. Uh, the French system is a very bizarre one. A president uh, that who does not have a majority in the National Assembly is a very is in a very strange situation. We had that during the cohabitation, as we said. François Mitterrand has experienced that, and Jacques Chirac has experienced that as well. If this happens, then the president is obliged to focus on external affairs and European affairs and to leave everything else to the prime minister. Then, uh, for Macron, we will not be in that situation. I think there are two scenarios for Macron. The first one is he manages to have a majority because he did better than expected because the Socialist Party and Les Républicains are such in a bad situation that many candidates and many important people in those parties will certainly accept to, uh, to join. Uh, the, the presidential majority in order to be able to save their seat or, uh, or, or to get something. So I think there is still a possibility for Macron to have a majority. It will not be easy, but it's possible. If he does not have a majority, there will be no majority because the extreme left does not have the capacity to win 289 seats. They have 14 uh, currently, I guess. And the extreme right uh, cannot do it uh, also. They have eight Maybe the, uh, in the best case, the extreme left can move to 100, maybe. The extreme right, maybe to 50 or something, but certainly not a majority, which means that Macron may end up in a situation of being obliged to negotiate with several political parties to create a coalition. This will be totally new under the fixed republic. In that case, he would not be, be deprived completely of power for internal affairs, but he would have to negotiate with a prime minister who would be someone strong. And it's quite interesting to see how weak the prime minister is still, Jean Castex. Uh, he's certainly a capable person, but he's someone that no one knew when he was appointed. And he's there to implement the instruction of Emmanuel Macron. So if Macron is not able to, to win a majority, he will be in a situation of being obliged to co-govern with a strong prime minister, and this would be a major change. But maybe he's ready for that. It's uh, the last time of Macron. Maybe he will choose to focus on international and European affairs and then to move to something else. Can you tell us a little bit more about the political processes that will lead to um, the party's positions come legislative election? So we have Macron, who will want, as he did last time, to, to pull people away from the Socialists and the Républicains. And at the same time, 
uh, you will have Mélenchon on the left, Pen on the right, who will want to pull away the extremes of the left and right towards them in order in the long run to make themselves the dominant parties of their respective wings of politics. How much of this process will happen in advance of the first round and how much happens between the first round and the second round? And uh, what political strains and pressures does it put all the political parties under? Well, yeah, the, the negotiation have already started at all levels. So ideally, what the parties are trying to do is to limit the number of candidates in legislative elections. It's quite easy to run for legislative election. Basically, uh, I could go and run tomorrow if I wanted because you don't need a massive number of signature or whatever. So then there's a challenge for, uh, the, for the three main forces is to, to, to limit the number of candidates because, um, uh, yeah, the more candidates you have and the less chance you have to be at the second round. So La France Insoumise for Mélenchon they have started the negotiation already one week ago, but I would say in, in a very, um, not in a very uh, advisable manner, because Mélenchon has said we have won everything. And so we propose to negotiate with the Greens and with the Communists. You have done very low scores. Let's take the scores of the presidential election and share the constituencies at national level. And the other parties say certainly not, because this is not mirroring our real forces. And also the communists, they have 11 mem outgoing members. And La France Insoumise would like to have uh, their own candidate in those constituencies, because they're not fighting for 577 constituencies. They're fighting for the good constituencies, for the one in which they can win. So maybe they're talking here about a 200 constituency where it's possible for life to win. And then the negotiations are very tough. Also, Mélenchon has said, I'm not going to negotiate with a socialist. They are social treaters, they are neoliberals, they have said bad things about me, they have recalled so much that I'm a friend of Vladimir Putin, this is not very nice and not very correct. So now he's changing a bit his mind on that, but the negotiation will be super difficult, and there will be a lot of tension between the local level and the national level, because even if there is an agreement at national level, there will be resistance on the ground. If you are an outgoing socialist MP or green MP and or a communist MP and you're asked by your party to leave your constituency to a guy coming from nowhere because he's an insoumis, you will certainly say no and go and run uh, without the label of your party, but you will certainly make it because there is also a personal dimension in, in, legislative, in legislative election. It's quite possible also that even people who are not MPs, but have been waiting for 15 or 20 years to be the candidate, say it's my turn now and I'm not going to leave my, my position to that young guy of 22 years old coming from La France Insoumise. So this is a situation that's left very complicated. And I think that there will be a, a lot of competition on the ground, even if there is an agreement. At the extreme right, the situation is quite complex as well. Zemmour and Le Pen, they hate each other. And I don't know if they will be able to have some single uh, candidates. In the middle, we have less information because Macron is maybe smarter at negotiating and he does not start by insulting people. People, but he will try to negotiate things. But there is already some sort of a deal between La République En Marche and six other smaller part parties and forces, because already now in the National Assembly, Macron does not have a majority on his own anymore. He only has 269 or 65 MPs where you need 289. So he's already dependent on agreements with the centrists and other, and other people. He will continue in that direction. What he will try to avoid as much as possible 
is to have an official deal with other leaders. He wants to discuss with individual people. He wants to keep as much as possible a single group and not to have a real coalition with other partners that would be able to claim things for them. He does not want to enter in something like you have in Germany, in Belgium, in Denmark, where you have three, four leaders of political parties that are a bit rubbing their shoulders to, to, to know who is the boss. So this is a bit the situation today. Everyone is trying to do that before the first round, but then if it does not work, there will be also negotiation in view of the second round to have people maybe withdrawing their application if there are three candidates to or four candidates to the second round and having also people calling to vote for this one or this one. Well, it is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch, really gripping. Now, I want to move you on to, on to policy, if I may. Uh, Macron was, wasn't very specific about policy in his victory speech. Uh, and he's probably wise to do so. Why make commitments you don't have to uh, just after you've won? But assuming that he gets a majority or something like a majority, do you think there will be any change in his policy direction from his first term? I, I don't know. <clears throat> because on the one hand, uh, everybody is calling he, him to calm down and maybe to go more in the social direction. And during his campaign, at the, at the end of his campaign, he has developed a very social discourse because he understood that it was a mistake for him to focus on, let's say, neoliberal trends, saying I'm going to reform uh, the retirement system and I'm going to reform some social uh, policies and, and put some conditionality so for some help, some aid. And this really didn't look good. At the same time, when you read the newspaper today, there are people saying that he's preparing to uh, to go through with Article 49.3, which is a block vote uh, for um, his reform on, on retirement system. So I, I don't know where he is heading. At the same time, some people were saying that he, he will... Uh, calm down on European issues in order not to be too provocative with the Eurosceptic people. But if you look what he did on, on Sunday evening, he went on stage with European flags and the European anthem, and he, he very much spoke about uh, European affairs. So I really don't know, and we will have to wait for the appointment of a new government because there is a, a tradition in France after an election, even if it's the same president, you change the government. And Jean Castex has said, we are going to resign. And it's a way for, uh, for Macron to prepare for legislative election, to send a certain number of signs, to put in the government some, some people, because there is a negotiation uh, at three levels. There is a negotiation on who is in the alliance and who will get which constituency. There is a negotiation on the program. What are we going to put in the program? More social things, more environmental things. On environment, I'm sure he's going to do more. And the third element is who is going to sit in the government. And here, I'm very much looking forward to, and to, to know who will be the next prime minister and the next ministers, because this will give a very clear indication of his strategy for the next years. I mean, he's got two, well, perhaps there are three problems for him. The first is the agenda he personally passionately believes in and wants to pursue. And that includes European sovereignty, to a degree the environmental agenda, and certainly an agenda that will continue to foster France's economic dynamism, that's seen the, the employment success, the great success of his presidency, and uh, move the public finances further towards a sustainable pushing, which is what pension reform is, is, is uh, very importantly about. And then, he has a certain debt to repay, to repay 
to the voters of the left who lent him uh, their votes, which won him the election to catch the pen out. Not to say were, as you were saying, enthusiastically about him, but because they absolutely wanted to see the pen stopped. And then we have the problem of the polarization we've been talking about and how he addresses that, whether he can address that in policy terms. What do you, are there any specific measures, do you think? We've got the environmental measure, which will address the some on the left, but are there any others he will, he will produce, do you think, to, yeah. to further these, these three uh, political goals? What is quite interesting in French politics, I think it's it's the case to, to some extent in, also in other countries, people do believe that the program of the president running for election is just for communication. This is not true. I've been part in, in, in research project where we have gone through very systematically all the pledges made by the candidates and look if they were doing the thing or not. For instance, for Macron, his program of 2017, 50% of the pledges were uh, really made, uh, and another 30% were in, in the process of making, and a certain number were dropped, uh, especially the thing where he could not do it, for instance, uh, reforming the constitution. So Macron has included in his program, especially in view of the second round, a certain number of pledges regarding social things, a raise of salary, raise of minimum pension for uh, retired people, and so on, and I think he will do that. Remember, his motto is en même temps, all together. And he's totally capable in his, in his mind, the way he sees politics, a very pragmatic approach of things to do something very social and something very liberal at the same time. I totally agree with you that he will continue his own belief of reforming France for a, a sounder economy, doing the European things, giving more power to European institutions in a certain number of areas, working on that story of sovereignty of the EU. But he's totally capable at the same time to do some environmental things and some social things. And in his view, there is no matter of, of coherence or incoherence be, be between uh, all that. So I think this is the way he will do. And he's also thinking very much in terms of, let's say, satisfaction of clients. He sees a society as a, a collection of groups, and I'm going now to satisfy the hunters. And now I'm going to satisfy those persons and those who like to cycle and then the gay people. And and he's working like that. So I'm not sure this is the right way to do things, but I know that he it is the, his way to, to do things. What do you think? Is there anything to address the concerns of those who feel excluded, uh, who voted for Le Pen or Mélenchon or Zemmour? Is it a matter? Is it a matter of policy, or is it a matter of tone? If it's if it's the, the latter, if it's a general approach they dislike, then it's going to be much harder to end this polarization, at least for Macron to, to address. Yeah. I think it's a matter of three things. First of all, and first of all, I think it's a matter of people who fear the future, and this is not something specific to France. People who are fearing decline social decline, environmental decline, economic decline, the threat of war, et cetera, et cetera. And they have the feeling that they don't understand anymore the world in which they're living and they, they, they fear. And what you do when you fear, you say basically that people who are governing us are not, uh, are not able to manage uh, that situation. Let's try something else. So you try Marine Le Pen, you try Jean-Luc Mélenchon and the populists are elected all over the world playing on fears. There is not that much to do uh, about that because uh, uh, if you are 
living in a small village, uh, 100 kilometers from Bordeaux, uh, working in an industry that will may close its door next uh, next month, etc. There is no reason to be happy and to be positive about European integration and globalization and whatsoever and digitalization and the metaverse and all that. You don't care. You just care for your kids, for your job, etc., etc. You are desperate. And the figures of the vote in the countryside in France are incredible. It's 70 to 85% vote for Marine Le Pen. And I'm not even sure that they believe that she's capable to do something for them, but at least they are uh, unhappy. Sorry, there are some objective reasons why people are anti-system and not satisfied. Then there is a question of policies and the question of style. On the style, I think there is not much to do. Macron is like he is, and uh, he is perceived as arrogant. Maybe people like you and me, we don't find him arrogant. I don't find Macron that arrogant, because, but, uh, but I'm used to, to talk every day with people who have quite an ego. They know they are smart, they speak well, they are at ease. Okay, this is part of our professional environment, and many people are, are like that. But Macron is really perceived as an archetype of that kind of people, and he's not able to make it like Mitterrand, Sarkozy, Chirac, who were able to be cool and to be nice and to play the dump. Chirac was super good at playing dump. He was not. He was super smart. He was a student at Vienna. He, he, he had been reading books, but he has that image of a guy drinking beer, watching TV and, and running after girls. And Macron has the, the image of someone who's totally perfect who's not even interested in, in, in going and having an affair with uh, his secretary. He's not drinking, he's not eating, he's doing nothing. He's totally annoying for people who are not like him. And then there's the policies. Here there is something to do. And this is what we just discussed before. I think there is a certain, there is a need for a certain number of signs. And uh, Macron in the first term, he very much insisted on the startup nation and all the techs and things like that. But this is a discourse who's pleasing people who are educated, living in the towns, young people, et cetera, et cetera. If you are 65 years old, uh, living in the countryside, the startup nation does not speak to you. So he will have to do also things for those person. And here there are things to do. Yes. Yes. Do you think, um, what do you think his, he, he wants his legacy to be? I mean, he's got, he can't stand again as a success in the third uh, consecutive term. So presumably he has in mind things he will want to have achieved before he stands down. What do you think the two or three most important things are for him? I think he's a bit like Giscard. He sees himself as a reformist, a guy who's modern and wants to modernize France. And that's why he starts again with that story of uh, uh, the, the retirement uh, scheme in France. I would drop this one and leave it to the future. Don't mind the deficit, but he really wants to make it because he wants people in 20 years of time to say he had the courage to, uh, uh, to address that very important issue with some long and uh, long-term benefits. So I think that on searching regarding the, the structure of the work market, the environment for business, uh, the retirement system, public finance, as you, man as you mentioned, those are his topics and the European one. 
He really wants to do something for Europe to be able to transform the EU in some sort of power with more competence for defense, for security, and uh, for, for the EU to find its place between, between Russia, China, and the USA. And he has a wonderful uh, window of opportunity, if I can say that. I'm sorry, but uh, the war in Ukraine has a number of consequences which are totally incredible and were totally unpredictable. The fact that many member states have stopped with that illusion of neutrality, the fact that Germany is ac accepting the idea that they should invest in the army, the fact that, that the country of the Visegrad group, now they are a bit stuck because they, they have been uh, having some very strange uh, links with, with Putin and being very anti-European and so on. And now they're in a difficult situation. Orban does not know what to say anymore. And the population in those countries, in Poland, Hungary, in Czech Republic, in Slovakia, now they start to see the EU not only as a nasty commission with annoying norms, but maybe as a bloc that can protect them uh, from the Russians. So there is here a window of opportunity to, to Macron to maybe try to fuel a major change in the five years to come regarding the EU, including the enlargement issue, treaty reform, and giving more uh, power to the EU in a certain number of key competences. Right. Well, I think it is now time. Thank you very much uh, for all your answers uh, and uh, your expertise that you've shared with us in the past three quarters of an hour. Now I turn to look at some of the questions from our audience. And the first question is from Axel Blanchard. Uh, and they are how Macron could use his second term uh, to associate, to bring more people alongside. Yeah, this is a key question. And uh, uh, yeah, we did not discuss uh, about that right now. He already said that he's going to change his method of government. He had a very, let's say, vertical, centralized way of, of governing, which is what, what the uh, EU, what the institution of the Fifth Republic are providing him with. The president is super powerful in France. And uh, if you are the president and you have a majority in the National Assembly, you can do basically everything except changing the constitution. So he has already said that he wants to change things. And it is true that Macron is very much interested in uh, the mechanism of participative and deliberative uh, democracy. We all remember La Convention sur le Climat, that was that convention on the climate change or climate, and also the uh, exercise of deliberation that was made after the start of the Gilets jaunes crisis with the uh, Cahiers de Doléances and, uh, and, and all that. Um, yeah, there are two visions on that. You can have a cynical vision and say, okay, you just put that and create that to calm down people, et cetera, et cetera, and then make an effort and say, okay, we're listening to you. Uh, then you can have a less cynical view and say that maybe Macron believes in those in that methodology, and um, but maybe it's difficult uh, to um, difficult to take really into account that input in the functioning of the French political system. This may be the change. Remember that also the the conference on the future of Europe is also an idea of Macron, not only him, but he pushed that very much, and it is providing some very interesting results. So uh, I think there will be very much many things about that. And uh, in France, people are very eager about that. If you look at the last round of uh, uh, local election in France, in many towns, you had some citizens list who, who have won, and they want to do all that participative, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then the difficulty is that it's super difficult 
to organize that, to manage that. It's super time consuming for everyone, for public authority, but also for citizens. And we see now, uh, two years after the last local election, that in the cities where you had those uh, ecologies, green, participative, uh, uh, Meyer, that not that much is coming out of that because it takes an awful lot of time to organize that. And then there is a deliberative fatigue on the side of the citizens. They participate in five meetings and it's endless and you need to listen to the other one, super difficult. But still, I think that Macron believes in those mechanisms and that he will do more uh, on that side. With a limitation is that, again, it will be something from the insiders, for the optimists, for the people who believe in the system. And again, the old lady, 65 years old, in a small village in the countryside, she will not participate in those interactive, internet-based, deliberative systems. Yes. Well, uh, let's see how that goes. It's going to be a huge challenge for them, a really interesting question. Um, Our next question is from Sam Dunkley, who actually asks uh, two questions. Uh, one, the, the impact on Franco-British relations, particular regard to the small boats crossing the channel, uh, and the second about the effects of gravitation, uh, if he doesn't get an overall majority. On, I mean, on Franco-British relations, it's kind of, I suspect it's going to be same as, isn't it? I mean, the fact is, is that I'm afraid they are in the worst way they have been since the 1960s. And I don't think it's any secret that President Macron and uh, the current British Prime Minister don't get on very well. Uh, and it's quite, and although this, this British government desperately hopes that after the elect- electoral season there will be a reset it isn't obvious is it why there would be one yeah i'm not a specialist of the issue for instance of the small boats etc etc but if you consider the personality of macron and uh, um, and boris johnson basically they're not able to work together and if you think about how um Macron has scenarized the French political life uh, at home with the idea that he's a pro-European and he is uh, pragmatic and he's a nice one. And Marine Le Pen or Jean-Luc Mélenchon as the Eurosceptics, the bad ones, etc., etc. I mean, uh, Boris Johnson is a perfect opponent for him in that in that role, and there is no reason for Macron to be nice with with Johnson. And I guess things will change only if there is a new prime minister. But then Macron is a, is a pragmatic. If there is a new prime minister in in UK. Whoever it will be, I think he will try because it's important to find a new way of working with uh, UK. And it's also important to work on the relationship between UK and and the European Union. We cannot continue as it is because basically UK now is just considered as any random country uh, uh, around the world. Uh, even, even Russia or Turkey or, uh, or Canada has a stronger, uh, stronger ties with the EU, and it cannot continue like, like that. But at some point, it takes also some goodwill uh, at, some, at, some, at some level, and I think the conditions right now are not, uh, are not met. Uh, about the, the, the possibility of a cohabitation, as I said, I don't believe in a real cohabitation, because if you remember Mitterrand, uh, he was obliged to appoint Chirac as a prime minister. They were really the opponent, and then they, they were competing for presidential elections, so it was really a fight. And it was the same when when Chirac um, was obliged to uh, uh, to be in a situation of cohabitation against Jospin, and both were also running for the election of 2002. So this time it will be different. It will be different first because Macron will not run again for the position. He's not allowed by the constitution. And also because he will not have a political opponent as a prime minister. 
Mélenchon will not make it. Le Pen will not make it. Maybe we can have someone from uh, uh, the right wing or the moderate left wing. He will appoint someone who is not totally in line with him, and he will find a way to negotiate with that person. It will not be a cohabitation like we experienced already. Yeah, so something a bit more genuinely cooperative, uh, which would be good news for the coherence of, of French policy then in those years. And then we have... Uh, a last question from Giovanni Scompari uh, about uh, what the might slightly more leftist agenda might look like. I mean, the most obvious way, as we were saying earlier, is is environmental, isn't it? I mean, that's the one which is in tune with what he's where he's been going the past five years. It's in tune with the long term direction of, of energy policy. Um, anything else is probably a, a bit harder because the, the public finances matter to him and. Um, uh, he doesn't really want to put up taxes either because that affects the, the dynamism of the French economy, makes France less attractive to business. So beyond the environment, it's the, all the choices become rather harder for him to appeal to the left. Yeah, you're totally right. On environment, he can do more. Even if he's still someone who believes very much in growth and in the market, so it will be difficult for him to, to sacrifice growth to environment. I mean, here there is a very deep cleavage between the left, let's say, Mélenchon and the, and the environmentalists who are really calling for a change in our economic model and to end with, up with, with capitalism, saying that basically with global warming is a result of capitalism and changing for a change of model. And Macron is certainly not ready for that. Uh, on an economic standpoint, he's a liberal, so he will not uh, do that. He can do some measures with that idea of a green economy, exactly what Van der Leyen is trying to do at your and level with the Green Deal, transforming the economy, taking into account the, the green issue. On social policy, you cannot do much because there is no money. Uh, the COVID situation has cost 600 billion euros to France because we have the most general system to save, the, uh, to, to save uh, everyone, le quoi qu'il en coûte, whatever it costs. And you cannot continue with that. It's, it, it's, it's clear. Then there is another thing where it can do something that does not cost much. Uh, societal uh, questions. Uh, Hollande has done, for instance, uh, um, a wedding for everyone, and Macron did not have a, a, a major reform like that on question of society. He could do something there. I don't know. I have no idea, but allowing people to smoke pot costs zero, and it gives of you uh, the vision of- raise money. Yeah, it does even raise money if you look at how much it has made in Colorado. Um, and th that kind of thing uh, of reforms that are very symbolic or, or regarding, um, I don't know, adoption, medical procreation and things like that. Here, it's it's a, it's a place where you could, could do something on values. And he's also a liberal in values. So he's totally at ease with that. He's not a conservative. So I think he will have to do things on that side in order to, to, to show that he's not only liberal in economy, but also liberal in the values. So I think we've got uh, about five minutes left. So I'm going to use that time to ask a uh, Draw on your European expertise and ask a, a question, a further question of my own. And that is that I mean, Macron has been very impressive on the European scene. He has transformed France's standing. Uh, the, the political geography of Europe is also now lies to his advantage. Uh, Britain has left, which allows for a, a stronger French voice, frankly, in Europe. It has downsized to France, but uh, within the EU, it, uh, it makes uh, a country that it takes away a strong voice that often had a different perspective. And in Germany, we have a new chancellor who has had a very difficult, very difficult start. He's still finding his feet in government. 
in the European Council, and he's been hit by this war, which is creating big difficulties for him. So he succeeded in being, uh, in the past few years, the EU's main agenda setter. But he has not been, uh, he has not found it easy to be a compromise builder. And there are bruised feelings, particularly in Northern Europe and Eastern Europe. And there are particular bruises, probably about the security vision for Europe's future, because everyone's been reminded of the vital importance of the transatlantic alliance. And France is viewed with some suspicion in its previous relationship with Russia, where it's been seen as, as has Germany, too eager to go over these uh, these countries' heads. Do you think that these these problems, these the ways France could do yet still better in the EU, are they appreciated in the French debate in the Elysee? Is there any sign that in his second term he will change his approach to to broaden his appeal and become the kind of leader Merkel was? who was admired and respected because she was she not only advanced Germany's interests, but she had a regard to others' interests as well. Yeah, I agree that uh, people were a bit disappointed by the first Macron. When he was elected in 2017, people were really expecting him to, to be more active at European level and more cooperative, but he has been so French. Basically, his vision of European integration is one of the goals. He's very much in favor of French, but of an intergovernmental France where things are happening in the European Council around the German Chancellor himself. This is very annoying for the smaller uh, for the smaller member states because he's again and he's totally in the stereotype of the French guy, very arrogant, very egotic paying attention only to the big countries and not to the other one, not being able to speak to uh, to everybody, et cetera, et cetera. And it's true that he did not make that much in five years of time, first of all, because he was so much uh, uh, at, in trouble at national level with the Gilets Jaunes, and then the COVID came and hit the sink, and even the Conference on the Future of Europe, that was a, a very important element in his plan for the French presidency of the Council, was delayed from one full year before because of the COVID. So maybe the second term is for him, the occasion to focus more on European affairs for several reasons. Um, maybe he will have less to do at national level or he will not have a majority and then he will be obliged to do less at national level and leave his prime minister uh, to govern. Secondly, he will be a bit like in the same situation uh, than uh, Angela Merkel, not caring for his re-election and professional future because this is the last term for, for Macron and, and probably the end of his political involvement at national level. Once you have been president in France, it's super difficult to find another position in political life. It would be ridiculous for him to come back as an MP or a minister or whatever. So now he's certainly thinking about the future. What could be the future? I don't know. Becoming the president of the European Council or something like that, or the president of the commission, or I don't know. So certainly he will devote more importance to, to European affairs and maybe also improving his capacity of negotiation. He's a bit wiser now, a bit older, maybe he has learned also. Don't forget that he's young and uh, this also matters in uh, international relations. Then the final point, I think, again, there is a good window of opportunity for him because before he was claiming uh, that he wanted to do something about uh, the power of Europe or you know, autonomy of Europe or something. And then people were always suspicious, saying, OK, yeah, they just think about the EU as an extension 
attention to the French grandeur. And this is ridiculous. But now there is a new context. And evil people were quite skeptical uh, about that idea of making the EU a power, now tend to believe that maybe it's necessary. So if he's smart enough, now maybe he will find the necessary support to do more on defense and security at European level. And it could be a very nice agenda for him to find something to do in the five years to come. Yes. Well, uh, let's see how it, how it goes. It's going to be a fascinating next few weeks and a fascinating next few years. And uh, whatever else with President Macron, it's going to be lively. It's going to be interesting. Olivier, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really interesting discussion. Uh, you taught us all a great deal. Again, thank you all for joining. And uh, until next time, goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Denzel. Thank you. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.